this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So the pandemic has clearly affected the value of businesses big and small. But there's a way you can recapture a lot of that value if you think about your business through the lens of what an acquirer will care about. You know, as we grow our companies, oftentimes they become this sort of spaghetti ball of different products and services, but acquirers only care about what they could not replicate, what it would be difficult for them to redo or rebuild. And therefore, they're going to place a high priority on the products and services that you sell, which they deem to be truly differentiated. And that's why looking at your business through the lens of an acquirer can really be helpful in these situations where you're trying to rebuild. We can help you do it. Just go to valuebuilder.com. You can take a questionnaire that will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. We can also connect with you with one of our certified value builders who can be a sounding board for you as you go through this process. Best of luck with the rebuild, the restart. Please go to valuebuilder.com to check out the resources there. So would you rather own a small slice of a big company or a big slice of a small company? My next guest, Peter Domingos, has done exactly both of those things. And in this episode of Built to Sell Radio, he compares and contrasts his approach to running two different companies. One was a bootstrap startup where he retained 100% of the equity in the company and sold it for a healthy eight times EBITDA. The other was a tech startup where he built it up over a three-year run, raised a significant amount of capital and had a spectacular exit where he was a minority shareholder in a much bigger exit. And by comparing and contrasting the two, I think he does a fantastic job of describing the entrepreneur's dilemma. Is it better to own a big slice of a small company or a small slice of a big company? Well, here to tell you how Peter thinks about it is Peter Domingos. Peter Domingos, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're welcome. So you're an expert in this insurance space. I know nothing about insurance, so you're going to have to you're going to have to educate me about this whole category. Tell me a little bit about PDF. What what does this company do? Sure. So in its simplest form, we're a brokerage. So we sit in between the insurance company and the business customer. So our business focus predominantly B two B. So we would be managing, setting up, uh, and just just looking after their entire benefits program. So for most people, that's your health and dental program that you're familiar with. We expanded those services into wellness programs as well as retirement programs, but call it 90% of our business was setting up and managing and specifically servicing. So maybe what may be unique to us because we focused a lot on large businesses. So a hundred to a couple thousand employees was our target client. So we, we worked a lot with the HR department, the HR world. And a lot of it was around uh, servicing that. So surveys, uh, seminars for employees, education around how to effectively use their health and dental program and you know everything that goes with that. So from the end user, the employee who's familiar with their drug card or their programs, we would basically be the intermediary between that customer and the insurance company, which obviously sold the final product, but they were removed from most of the uh, negotiating aspect of it. Got it. And what's the business model? Like, how do you so, make Yeah, so we get a... It's, Funny enough, it's a little bit of a conflict of interest, like many industries, I think you can probably say that, where we got a percentage of claims, or percentage of what our customers paid. And, and they all knew this. It's not as if, even though the insurance company does a great job of confusing a lot of how this all works, uh, customers more or less are aware that in our industry, we get a percentage of claims. And that can range from you know, 1% to 10%, depending on size of company and so forth. Um, so you can argue that there's a slight conflict in the sense where as a business, we are there trying to service and help customers reduce the cost of their health and their dental and their benefit programs. Meanwhile, we get paid more money the higher, the more they spend or the higher they claim. So I, 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 the long-term successful brokerage obviously has the long-term horizon in mind and the customer will obviously see that when you're looking to make adjustments and plan changes 
in a way that's going to create a sustainable program. But essentially, that's how we get paid. We're a percentage of what they pay. That's helpful. And is there a tail to the revenue? Like, do you get annuities every year the customer renews? Is there a piece of revenue? Yeah. So, and I speak only to the benefits corporate aspect of insurance because individual insurance works completely different, which is not our space. Uh, We get the same percentage uh, every single year. So it's not a tail in the sense that it's a smaller amount. It's the exact same. It's a hundred percent renewable revenue for us on an annual basis. And in theory, considering that in general, North America, it's a blanket statement, but we're all getting unhealthier. In theory, we're probably, or we've seen that we make more money per year per customer because on average people are claiming more. Now, obviously we're trying to fight against that. Uh, but yeah, it's the same amount, same percentage amount every single year. And how big did you get this company before you decided to sell it? So top line revenue, we were about 13 million or so. Um, <clears throat> and we had five employees. So we were, again, focusing, we knew our audience. We had about 100 customers uh, in our space. And which is, you know, depending on where other businesses sit, you know, that could be a lot, that could be nothing. Uh, compared to my other business with thousands, it's a very different segment. So we, it was very much a relationship-based type of organization. So I was very heavily involved with most of the customers. Um, and again, we focused specifically in HR departments. So we knew exactly where we did very well. And that was our key target audience. So we wanted at least about 100 employees. Um, and getting to that 100 customer base uh, my, my support based account manager. So I was the main person bringing on the ba- bringing on the business. And then I had account managers call it one person, every 25 people or 20, give or take. So let me understand, cause it, your revenue per employee is astronomical. So of the, the 13 million, is that when I buy a dental plan and I pay a hundred dollars a month, are you referring to revenue as that the, the $100 a month? Or is it your percentage of that $100 a month that makes up the revenue for your firm? No, it's the, it's the first part. So it's the top line amount. And then we would get a, a, think of it like payroll. So the top line is a lot higher. Okay. So our gross profit, if you will, on that is closer to 10%. So call it, let's say a million and a half, give or take. That's helpful. Okay. Uh, yeah. I was going to say your, your, your revenue per employee is like McKinsey. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 And that's the confusing part about certain, the insurance business in general, especially the brokerage aspect, uh, where you're looking on the top, uh, top line revenue per employee. It's similar, it's, I mean, payroll is the perfect example to me where, because in some cases, not to make matters even more confusing, in some cases we collected the money on behalf of the insurance company. So that money actually funnels in through our brokerage mm-hmm. and then we pay it out to the insurance company. In other cases, it went the other way around. The insurance company collected it and they paid us our portion. So our, our revenue streams are kind of messy in that sense. Uh, our top line revenue, I should say. So if you look at gross profit, which I think is probably more the more appropriate one, then you take, give or take, call it 10% of that. Got it. Okay, that's helpful. Now, at what point did you come up with this other business idea, collage? Because you started to run two companies if I understand this correctly, simultaneously. Correct. Yes. I mean, the timing was perfect uh, in the sense that I was in the right time in my career as far as understanding the pain points of my industry. So I had been running PDF for about 10 years, sorry, probably about seven, eight years at that time. Um, And part of, again, speaking to the HR audience through PDF, I began teaching HR or teaching pension and benefits in the HR program at a local college here, Humber College. Uh, and for me, it was, it was great for multiple reasons. Uh, it was a great way to get a brand out selfishly. Uh, it was a great way to give back to the community. I love teaching. Uh, and it was a great way to plug into the future HR leaders of the Toronto market. So that was uh, something that I really enjoyed doing. But in that moment, I realized going even deeper into the HR world, I realized that there was a tremendous amount of gap in HR services for the small business market. So as I mentioned earlier, PDF was focused more on the 100 plus employees that had HR, had a lot of HR solutions as a result of having the HR personnel. Whereas the small business, I recognized did not have the majority of these things and, and it, they certainly needed it. And a big reason why they didn't have it was just didn't want to, didn't have the budget to pay for it. So being exposed to the world of HR, um, 
the worlds were kind of colliding. It was interesting. So I was coming to this realization. And then in the, in the South, in the US, there's a company called Zenefits, Benefits with a Z, basically, uh, that had basically all of the attention from the VC world. It raised a tremendous amount of money. Valuation, I think, was upwards of a billion dollars. It was just like something unheard of. And it, it created a lot of noise in Canada. So I, had to, I looked at that a little bit deeper at that time where I felt like there was a need for this. It felt like everything was happening at the same time. Uh, my co-founders at Collage, funny enough, the one co-founder particularly who had a finance background, uh, he and I went to high school together. So we knew each other. And he was talking to me about wanting to get involved. So he was looking for another startup as well. And he was talking to me about you know, what, what's happening in the world of HR. All of a sudden, all the finance guys in Toronto got wind of HR and insurance as an industry to get into. So like those three things started colliding. My industry is getting shooken up by the fears of what's going to happen if a benefits like business comes north to Canada, which obviously they did not, and they had a slew of issues. Um, I was seeing it from the perspective of, well, there's an actual need here. Small businesses in HR don't have these technology services. And then the finance, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm confused. I don't know anything about Zenefits, but um, I'm confused about what it is that Collage did. So what was the, you're talking about HR software, but like when I think of HR, I think of some lady with glasses who hands sure. out payroll stubs. Like, and that's just because that was the person that I, the only company I've ever worked for right. happened to be a woman who ran the HR department. That's in my mind who, you know, who, who an HR professional is. So what kind of software do these people need? Right. So, so HR software is basically taking any paperwork that any employee is familiar with in the journey of being onboarded, being maintained, and being exited, if you will, that entire employee journey. The HR software takes all that paperwork and just takes it to the, to the cloud, in our case, or takes it to software. So from onboarding a new employee and, and sifting through rev, um, uh, resumes, so the applicant tracking system. So within HR process. There are multiple types of systems. Some HR companies have doubled down on one aspect of it. So maybe just an onboarding software or maybe just a performance management software. Ours did a little bit of everything because again, we recognized a small business didn't have budget to pay for individual softwares. They wanted an all-in-one cookie cutter off the shelf product that was going to give them the then only the necessary aspects of each one of those software. So included applicant tracking, and then you hired an employee, you needed to do performance management, you need to track all the employee's personal information, just have a database for that. Uh, and then if an employee's exited, you need to obviously do the termination process and file paperwork with the government that needs to be done uh, at that time. And then the link to benefits in all this, and this is where kind of my two worlds collided, was benefits, as you've experienced, and most of us have experienced setting up benefits for ourselves and our employees, is that there's a tremendous amount of paperwork. Kind of lives in the dark ages a little bit, the insurance space. <laughs> so what collage and collage-like companies were doing at that time, and benefits was, in the US, really doubled down on that, was kind of bringing that and the world of payroll as well together. So benefits and payroll have a lot of paperwork, and they were taking that paperwork, heavy lifting, off the table and say, well, now the employee goes online, they self-administer uh, through the cloud platform, and that's going to sink to the insurance company. It's going to sink to the payroll company. So you get rid of all that paperwork. So it was infringing on the benefits world because it was providing benefits admin technology that was essentially threatening the way the benefits setup was being done all these years prior. So now it became, these type of software became attractive to a company that says, well, if I can get this HR software, for, and, and to backstep a little bit, Zenefit's business model at that time, and this is why I was creating a lot of shockwave, they were giving this away for free in order to get your benefits business. So they were a licensed brokerage, and so was Collage, funny enough. We took the similar business model. Um, we were a licensed brokerage, so in essence, competing with PDF but totally different segments of the market. And what we were doing, we were saying, well, here's the HR software that's going to manage all your benefits admin, your HR admin, your payroll, completely for free. We'll give you that software if you make us your benefits provider, your benefits broker. So that was the hook. And that was creating a big shockwave in the market because now companies were faced with, do I take this new broker, quote unquote, with this technology that's free that otherwise was unaffordable for me because I'm a small business 
or do I stick with my previous broker who's been doing things the same way, you know, there's a lot more gray hair uh, and hasn't really evolved with the insurance. So because of that, there was a lot of movement in our space the last five years. Wow. You must've been like shooting fish in a barrel. For sure. Yeah. What an interesting contrast. On one hand, you've got a heavily service business, to, you know, with you as the rainmaker, but you know, profitable. And then you've got this software company. What was it like to learn an entire different category? I mean, if, I would assume software is such a different beast. Completely. Uh, I mean, thankfully, one of my co-founders was a Tech genius, the guy's incredible. Uh, so without him, obviously, none of this is possible. And I think that's the realization I had. Uh, and if I ever were to start another tech company, I value having a tech technology at the co-founder level. For us, it went uh, significantly far because I'm, like many of us, when we look about, think about building a business, the dilemma is always, well, do I hire? Do I give shares? For us, being how key was the technology piece, having that the co-founder mindset as well as the technology expert all in one together was uh, was a deal breaker or did, ended up being. Sorry, go ahead. How did you guys raise money? Did you raise money or did you bootstrap uh, Collage? So we raised money with Collage uh, through Power Financial, Power Corp. We, and the reason, again, I, I wish I had a more heroic story in this, but I feel like the stars really aligned in our scenario in the sense that there was a company called Well Simple in Toronto that had raised money from PowerCorp. They'd done tremendously well. And I think PowerCorp and a few other large financial institutions realized that there's something here where we can invest in young entrepreneurs uh, and try and recreate the future financial pillars that have you know, provided them so much wealth in the past, but people are doing business in a different way. So Well Simple, I think, was a great uh, example of how that works, you know, call it old money, but yet a new way of doing business through technology. And we were the second investment. Now I think our course portfolio consists of probably a hundred companies to give mm. you some context over the past four years. Um, so we raised capital because to your question about the difference between a tech company and one that's, I managed hundred percent my own or bootstrapped is PDF, I was growing brick by brick. I didn't take on any debt. I didn't take on any external capital. Uh, everything was running at a profitable basis. And the way I thought about growing that business was dramatically different from a tech company where it's all about fast growth. So we were never aiming to be profitable. Best case, we're aiming to be break even just so we wouldn't be in a difficult position that we needed to raise capital just to make payroll. Uh, but everything was all about growth. So we gave a lot of product away for free we recognize that our industry in the tech space, good or bad, right? And I think everyone's got their own perspective on technology and valuations around it. We recognize at the time that valuation was very heavily based on membership, not profitability or not even revenue for that matter. So we were very focused on just sweeping up a tremendous amount of membership in a very short period of time. And I think I'm, I'm certain that that's the, the biggest value that our, our buyer saw in us was the fact that we acquired so many employees in such a short period of time. So the, the way to grow, the mindset around growing that business and the discipline in growing that with that focus, exceptionally different. And probably, it, not probably, it made me feel very uneasy because we were spending money very quickly to grow that if you're growing a business to be profitable, to put food on the table for your family, you're not taking those type of risks, right? It's a very different dynamic. Man, I've got so many questions because it's, it is so, it's such a beautiful contrast. One, a bootstrap cash flow business, the other, uh, uh, you know, financed. So to go back to the comment around the value driver in collage, your view was that it wasn't recurring revenue as much as it was membership growth. Membership being number of employees who are, you know, uploaded into the software. Correct. Yeah. And what was it about membership that was so attractive to a strategic investor? Yeah, and it's specifically because our platform had multiple services in it. So again, we were, our average customer at that, at that point was about 20 employees. Uh, we did all of their HR services that otherwise could have been for, so for example, for PDF customers, they maybe have used three or four software, whereas for the collage customer used just ours. So the value to anything, the value was, was to 
the big value is to anyone who we plugged into. So payroll, insurance companies, and maybe another HR solution. But generally, it's payroll and insurance. Because now to the payroll company, we plug in the payroll to their services or the insurance can plug into theirs. However, to, that, to the customer, we're not just a payroll integration or an insurance integration or an applicant tracking system or performance management software or an exit uh, software. So we, had, we touched the customer in so many different ways beyond just payroll that we are a very sticky customer or we're very, we had a very sticky relationship with the employee. So to the payroll company who only had one type of, of, of point of contact, now that gave them access to many uh, was why it was very valuable to one of those parties that we plugged into. So insurance, excuse me, insurance obviously is one that bought us, um, but we recognize that we are sticky because of that. Got it. How much money did you guys raise and, and what was the valuation? So we raised, uh, it's interesting because we ended up only needing three and a half, but we had a commitment of five at a valuation of 13. So uh, you, you raised three and a half million dollars at a valuation of 13 million? Correct. Right? Yeah. Okay. So giving up roughly 20, 20, I'm doing the math in my head, 25%, is that right? You got Ish, it. 22%. And so you're, you and your other founders ha- kept the remaining equity or were there other investors? So we kept the remaining. We, we had a, a decent proportion that we committed to our staff and options. Mm-hmm. So the, the, we kind of split the balance. Not exactly for our ways, but we were very pro-employee um, owning shares of the company. And were you always building to sell, Peter? I mean, was that part of... I guess I'd be curious to know, how was your exit... Um, your, your intention to exit different between PDF and collage? Yeah, so PDF, and I'll come back to it, but I was never looking to sell there, but circumstances, you know, put an opportunity that made a lot of sense. Uh, collage, we were always looking to hit a checkpoint that was going to give us one of two options, raise more money or sell. I think it's, I always thought that it would, for me, it would be a naive thought for me to think that I, this is a legacy business that we pass on to our children. I mean, aside from the fact that there are multiple shareholders, uh, you know, the technology world in general is a very fickle one in the sense that you're here today, you're gone tomorrow. So I think that throughout the whole time, I was aware of that. And I knew that we had, we had created a lot of waves in the water that people were looking at us, looking at us from investment. So we, had, we always had different investment. Uh, investments that came across our desk, partner investments or partial investments. And in that opportunity, there was the offer of, of a full out acquisition. So I always knew that we were either going to double down further and go to the next step, or we would be, we'd have an opportunity to sell. Uh, so yeah, I think that that was always on my mind that we, we weren't building to sell, but we were running the business in the way that it was attractive to people looking from outside in. That makes sense. And give, I mean, people listening to this show would be interested to know what specific decisions you took to make your business attractive to an outside strategic investor. Can you give people an example? Maybe something that's, that's, that's maybe less specific to insurance, but was there anything that sure. you did that might transfer whatever industry someone's in that you did because your intention was specifically to either sell or or raise an additional round of money? For sure. People and process are, are the quickest way I can sum it up. And I know some of it, even to me, it seemed a little counterintuitive. But I recognize that if the co-founders were too heavily involved in the process, that that necessarily, that that necessarily is not good to the business. Um, so getting, for example, the proper management in place, because that's a sellable feature to an acquire or even to a partner or to an investor is the investor. If we just take that channel for a moment, they're looking to say, okay, if I put a dollar into this machine, it's going to output $10. They just want a system and they want to understand how that they're going to get their $10 on the back end of that deal. And people, the right people in the seat actually goes a long way beyond just the co-founders. The co-founders, you know, a lot of reasons create, cause someone to be a co-founder. In my case, right place, the right time. I saw a pain point. Sure. That doesn't mean that I'm necessarily the right person at every stage of the business to make the right, to make the key decisions. And I think most, most 
sophisticated investors will see that. So from my experience, I found that they were looking for co-founders that were intelligent enough to know which people to put in the right place. So we made some key hires that actually elevated our brand to say, well, look, we have this person uh, and sitting in this seat and they come with this wealth of experience as co-founders we don't bring to the table, but we recognize that that's a gap. And that's our skill set as a co-founder to bring, to fill that gap. So we paid, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so give me an example of a key hire, external hire, not one of the co-founders that you think added to your value. So for us, it was a marketing uh, intelligence and not necessarily the marketing that first comes to mind, which is like commercials and that type of marketing, but more so. So we had a, we brought on a consultant and we ended up hiring um, through multiple hires. So we took us a while to get the right fits. But it really, the gap that we recognized is we need to fill was we didn't have expertise on our team. Call it, call it the, the, mar- the, uh, ex- the journey of the customer, the customer success journey, or, or the, you know, that particular process that the customer goes through from funnel management. So it's like marketing slash sales. You could call it um, business insights, uh, but it's more the technical aspect of marketing. So you make sure that you capitalize on every opportunity as the employee or sorry, as the customer goes through each phase. So that expertise was something that we didn't have. We knew how to bring people forward. Uh, we had a good reputation. We had some, some good marketing campaigns. Uh, we had a great network, but then what you, you catch the person's attention. There was a lot of gaps in the next steps and how to funnel that person through and upsell and, and the system around that. So having the person that's experience in, in creating that flow, but also knowing what technology to use and leverage. And there are tons of platforms out there. Um, but that was critical because then, then now we can go back to investors or potential acquirers and say, well, here is the, the, the machine, right? And this is how it's going to flow through. Here's the person managing it, and they've done this before. And this is how you're going to output your $10 on your one investment. Got it. So there was, you could communicate, there was a a systematic way to, to, to bring in clients through the funnel to become customers. And, and you had codified that and you had, you had talent. That's excellent. So talk to us about the, the exit of PDF. So here you are, you've got this company where you've got these hundred clients. Why sell? What was the trigger? Yeah, it's a good question. And I never planned to sell. Uh, we we're very profitable. And it was kind of like I said, collage was, uh, we're not aim- aiming to be profitable. So PDF was what provided my lifestyle. And I knew the business had great relationships. In the process of getting attention through collage from insurance and payroll and so forth, uh, in that process, I developed a relationship with all, obviously, the parties, but specifically with Hub International. Sorry, what's Hub International? What is that? So Hub International is one of the largest brokerages in uh, North America. Uh, they're the largest now in Canada. And they're private equity backed. And they basically have grown tremendously through acquisition. So they did a great job in the U.S., and then they, they came up to Canada basically saying, well, we succeeded in this model in the U.S. We're specifically around buying benefits. So Hub International has been predominantly in the property and casualty type of insurance. So think of uh, for, I mean, they do individual home and auto, but if you think of from businesses like um, your liability insurance for a business, any business has some level of insurance that protects sure. them. So that, that was their bread and butter. And they rightfully saw the value through their success in the U.S. by trying to uh, acquire complementary type of brokers, that being benefits brokers, and then looking to cross-pollinate or cross-sell and, 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 and you know, double down and provide more service to the same customer. So that worked tremendously well for them in the U.S., from what I can tell. Uh, and then they took that model up to Canada and they acquired about 20 companies in the past two years, us being one of them. Uh, and so at that time, I was approached by Hub, just being involved in the network, I was very, I was very in tune with. And that's one thing you, I learned as well in, in my process is even if we're, you're not looking to sell, I always thought it's never hurt to have conversations with people um, and just see what people are talking about. There's always a learning that I found in just having conversations, investors, buyers, and so forth. So anyway, the conversations, knowing that we had a lot of people spotlight on collage, 
there was a side conversation then that went off with Hub. Hub was not interested in collage. It wasn't the core. Um, it wasn't an acquiring type of company that sort of company that they're looking to acquire didn't fit their model. But they they showed a lot of interest in my other business, which is the brokerage, which fit identical identically to their um, acquisition model. And at first, I was very reluctant, but you know. They said, let's just go down the path. Let's see what will happen. And I'd heard from some others that had sold that uh, things were favorable. Debt was cheap in the U.S. So they were coming up to Canada. Their model worked in the U.S. And then, yeah, there was a, the deal made a lot of sense for me personally. And uh, it was just too good to be true, as they say. And what made it too good to be true? So historically, and this is probably no surprise, if you look at PDF, uh, it, it's arguably sometimes you can view it as a practice more so than a business. Look at accounting firms, for example, legal firms, where the owner is the main component to the business. It's tough to, to sell a business like that for anything beyond maybe one or two times EBITDA, uh, simply because as the buyer, you're taking too great of a risk buying something where there's a strong relationship. So I've, I was aware of that, and I was totally fine with that because it was a very profitable business. Um, so uh, that was the, the unique thing about PDF where I didn't, our industry just never had purchase multiples that were anything outside of that. Whereas when Hub came along and they were at that time, I mean, now we're in COVID-19, so I'm sure things are different. But at that time, uh, multiples were close to eight times EBITDA. So and they were offering opportunities to plug into their organization. So I'm still with Hub right now. My team is still with Hub. And it allowed basically an opportunity to de-risk, take capital off the table, but still have the benefits of, of plugging into a large organization. And I think I just recognize that this is an opportunity where the U.S., a lot of U.S. companies, and Hub wasn't the only one. There's a few others that have come up to Canada. And they're just swallowing up business. They're on a... Uh, on a, on a, they're right now they're looking to acquire a lot of business and then probably integrate everything. So I'm, assu I'm assuming yeah. the eight times would have had some kind of burnout component to it. It wouldn't have been all cash, would it? Yeah, the majority uh, is cash, at wow. least in, 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 in my particular case. Uh, but there's always an earnout component to it as well. I think it, yeah. it makes a lot of sense to incentivize, um, but the majority. Is cash. So it's very unusual for our industry to see this. Yeah. Um, which, you know, when you're, at least when I was looking to sell, then it begs the questions. And there was, there was hesitation in that process, even though it was eight times EBITDA. I was saying to myself, at least, you know, are they seeing something in the industry that I'm not? Uh, is, is something about to change or our industry is going to see uh, bigger opportunities and greater opportunities? Or is the writing on the wall actually the opposite that we're going to end up being? Uh, uh, the majority of brokers in Canada are going to be the mid to large size brokers and the smaller mid brokers actually won't have a chance to survive as, as they are today because the, the insurance industry historically has been very fragmented. You have a lot of individual brokers uh, that are involved in a lot of different types of insurance where in the US, it, it's not as fragmented. There's been a lot of consolidation. So my personal thought was that the consolidation was going to happen in Canada as well. And I recognize the benefits, having seen the world of collage where things were being consolidated and the world of the pure insurance component where this consolidation, I saw that in the States as well. My take on where our industry was going to look five years from now is that it's going to be made up of fewer, larger brokers that offer more than just insurance, but they're going to offer a lot of other types of services that a boutique brokerage like us, I don't think would have been able to compete. So it felt like it was just the right time. And your own personal life situation, what impact or what role did that play in your decision to sell PDF? Like what kind of maybe, if you're comfortable talking about the kind of the life stage you were at, was, was that a component in the decision to sell PDF? It 100% was. So I'm 35. Um, and between the sale of the two businesses, it allowed me to hit my number. And everyone has their number. Um, and I kind of just felt it just everything kind of aligned. There was nothing. So the fact that the deals themselves made a lot of sense. And then the fact that I was able to hit that personal financial number 
between those two deals just felt like it was the right thing. So it, it wasn't the, the key driver. I, I try to disconnect the emotion from the sale of the business, but it certainly helped motivate me. That's for sure. What was it about your number that you found motivating? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and I uh, fortunately had to get into that type of thinking. And for me, at least, that number was about, as an entrepreneur-minded person, um, that number was about getting to a point where I have full control and freedom of my destiny. And I never have to think about forcing to start a business or forcing to be an employee uh, just to bring food on the table. So it was, it was an amount of money that I knew that I could, in the market, conservatively generate to provide for my lifestyle. So that, to me, in, in my journey, is always well, that's phase one in building whatever my path is. First is find that autonomy, being completely self-sufficient. And then to, and to give me that clarity that, or that allows me in theory, I mean, I'm still in the, in the, the transition of everything, uh, but that gives me the clarity to make the right decisions. Um, so that was probably a big reason. Uh, I think that then motivated or I'm certain that motivated because it allowed me to hit that first phase uh, of my journey or whatever that looks like. And now I know that I have complete control on what the next steps are to be. What's phase two? Yeah, and that's, that's a really good question. Um, so now I'm with Hub. I mean, it's a great organization. Uh, we have a two-year earn out there. Uh, I suspect, given from my experience with them, that at the end of the two years, they're probably going to put forward uh, an attractive um, offer. And, and what's unique about Hub is it's, it's a, all the acquisitions are entrepreneurs. So it's very entrepreneurial focused. So for anyone who's looking to make changes in our industry, uh, Hub is an opportunity to be able to do that because it's built essentially through acquisition of entrepreneurs. So I think at that moment, I'm going to be faced with a question of, do I want to take on our industry? Uh, do I want to take advantage of the framework that Hub has and the size of Hub to take on our industry at a grander level? So there are a lot of moving pieces in our industry at the large company level, consolidation and so forth. So there's going to be some unique opportunities in the insurance and HR space uh, for some creative solutions. So there's potentially for anybody uh, interested in that legacy, there's a potential to, to leverage the network and the foundation to make a huge impact. So I think my big dilemma will be, am I done with this industry or do I want to make a bigger impact now that I have the foundation? So given my age, uh, I think, you know, there's some excitement of, of both. So it's a really tough decision. I think it's uh, funny enough, it's more stressful than I, than I thought, uh, but it's a very fortunate without it. What do you find stressful? I think it's the, the entrepreneur's uh, dilemma of putting pressure on oneself. So when I first sold, I thought I'd be able to take the foot off the, off the gas a little bit. Whereas now, Funny enough, the, it's completely turned on its head. I actually put more pressure on myself to say, well, now you have your financial freedom. Go create a legacy. I mean, I would almost, I'm almost getting mad at myself for thinking that I can just kind of put things on cruise control. So now I feel the sense of an obligation to go and do something more impactful that I have the time, resources, and, and so forth to do it. So it's, I never would have thought that my mind would have changed in that sense so quickly at least but it's, it definitely has. I feel more of an obligation, more this anxiety to go out and take advantage of the position that I'm in. Why not just hit the beach? <laughs> yeah. And maybe I will. Maybe for like two months out of the year, I'll be on the beach. Uh, <laughs> but that's a good question. I mean, that was the initial thought to say, now I could hit the beach. But I, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's the, the fire that drove me to begin with to start businesses is certainly still there at my age. So it's just a matter of how do you repurpose that in a way that's uh, going to be satisfying. And I think for my journey specifically, I like the idea of checking off different challenges. So um, I probably wouldn't start another brokerage again. If I stayed in the insurance world, I would, I would take advantage of the structure that I'm in within right now with Hub. If I didn't stay in the insurance world, uh, I would probably look at something completely different um, but I, I don't like the idea of just repeating what I did. And I know that's probably not the smartest thing because 
there's a lot of value and experience. But for what it's worth for me, I, I like the idea of a new challenge. And I think that is what excites me more is to say, well, what else can I challenge myself with? Uh, and definitely being part of a large corporation, I was coming from small business, going to a large company uh, in itself is a big challenge, just understanding how big corporation works. So I'm in the, in the spirit right now where I'm just being a sponge. I'm just trying to take in as much as I can. Um, I've had people look at and, and approach me for different type of angel investing. Uh, obviously, I've not done anything like that because that's a very uh, easy way to lose everything you've earned by just <laughs> throwing it at different investments. But I'm, I'm learning. I'm trying to understand what those other worlds look like. Let's spend a, a few minutes on collage because I skipped over that unintentionally and we should circle back because incredibly, you sold both businesses in short order. So PDF, I think we've explored that um, deal. And I think I get that, that the sort of uh, structure of that deal. Talk about collage. How was that sold? And how did that compare and contrast with the PDF deal? So collage was sold based on us approaching another checkpoint. So we had hit break even. Uh, we recognized that we needed more money. We're about 45 employees at this point. Uh, we recognized that we needed to make a maneuver. And there was a lot of attention now in our industry. So we knew competitors and large and small competitors were finding ways uh, to get into the technology space. So for us, it was very clear. It was either partnering or being acquired by a large company that's going to allow us to see this vision through and, and do it very quickly. It was, a, it was very much a time play. Or we were going to look to, um, sorry, either get acquired and, but still be part of that vision or raise some money, a significant amount of money to get to the next step. So and we always continue to have those conversations, but we were always aware of it, that we were going to hit that point. So we hit it within about three years. 45 employees, are you able to, I mean, is it public to talk about how much revenue you had, how many members you had, that kind of stuff? Uh, I can talk about members. Uh, I'll say this. I mean, we are a break even essentially. So, and our biggest cost for the most part was employees. So, I mean, when you're running a business uh, like that, technology is not technology. The cost of technology is the cost of your people, your developers. Mm -hmm. uh, so call it a couple million in revenue. I don't remember the exact number. Um, but we were, we, again, we were not very, we had the potential, the business had the potential. If we were charging every customer, we would easily be five, six times more revenue. Mm -hmm. But we were, again, very focused on membership. So we were, as we were growing, we were really growing to the amount that we needed to, to net out our profit. Uh, and then we were faced with the dilemma as well. In that same discussion with my co-founders, one of the dilemmas was, okay, do we even want to take on more investors right now? We don't want to get to the point where we're a minority uh, in the decision-making between the three of us. Do we want to take on investors? Do we want to start charging customers? So we actually went through that discussion. We had the majority of our, of our membership base was for free. They were on that platform. We were just really in growth mode. And that's what, that was the intent of leveraging that three and a half that we raised initially. But once we got to a point of break-even, we said, well, we can either raise more money and be acquired, or we could look at turning this into a lifestyle small business. And that was a very legitimate question that we had, or discussion that we had, which was, do we, yeah, we're going to charge customers, or we're probably going to lose about half of them, and, but we're now going to be a profitable organization. We're going to be running along, probably making you know, half a million, a million dollars in revenue a year uh, by doing this transition, and then we can take the business to something that's maybe profiting a couple million a year. Uh, so we, we had those discussions, but then we also recognized that going down that path, it's not as easy as just turning that switch on and assuming that the, the industry is going to stay as quiet as it is. We knew that there was so much attention coming into our space that there, we were going to be faced against other companies that had way more money behind them than, than we would have at that moment if we decided to, to go bootstrap from that moment forward. So it was a very difficult conversation um, because we had to figure out what aligns with what we want with this company, what aligns with the three of us in our lifestyle. Thankfully, as a co-founding team, we were very aligned. Uh, we had a great relationship, um, which I think could have been a completely different outcome had we not, but we had a great relationship. So for us, it became a moment, the clarity, um, or we had a moment of clarity and said, well, this is being acquired at that moment seemed like the best thing to do. We had 
we optimize the deals optimized based on financials. Uh, it saw the best opportunity for the brand to go forward. So we were thinking about our employees because we had some acquires at the table that would have completely changed our message that we've been pushing to our employees for three years. And I felt like as a co-founding team, I was not willing to accept that to have my employees look at me and say, well, you just did this for the money. Um, that was a more, more, a bigger payout than what we had, but it was just totally disaligned, uh, what they wanted to do with the brand. So it, it was, did you have multiple offers, Peter? Like, get into the mechanics. Did you did you take it to market and you know formally kind of shop it with an M and A professional? Or we what did. Was, yes. Okay. Yeah, we, we did, and and then arranged. I mean, some of the bids, the delta on bids was like fifty percent, five zero. Wow. So it so went to it went from, to the, show, yeah. from the low bid to the high bid. There was a fifty percent difference. Actually, sorry, from the bid, to, yeah, from the low to the high is almost double. Wow. Wow. And so how many offers did you get? So we had three offers. And, and what types of companies did you go to in canvassing potential acquirers? So payroll, insurance, and insurance aggregator. So People Corp that bought us, they're not necessarily a broker. They're more of an aggregator because they, they acquire, they've acquired in their portfolio, they have brokerages, they have, they have administrative companies, they have wellness companies. Now they have us in the HR technology. So they're not an insurance company, uh, but they're not necessarily a broker, let's say like Hub International, even though they have broker services, they're more considered more of an aggregator. So the, the big player insurance and payroll companies uh, were the ones that it made most sense for them to be at the table. Got it. So, and, and sort of what, what was their offer? How was it structured? They, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so the offers for the offers were more cash uh, upfront, and I think, and again, I'm speculating based on what may have been in their mind because that's the 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 fun and not so fun part of negotiating is trying to anticipate what the other party is is valuing your business on on what synergies they might have. Uh, so for the most part, they were more cash upfront. And that could have simply been just a balance sheet uh, discussion for them where they were cash heavy. Um, so it just seemed that that was pretty straight across the board. There was, uh, or there were rather um, uh, targets or checkpoints on some synergies being achieved. So some cross sell being achieved. So that was common to most of them. But I would say the biggest determining factor that provided that spectrum was how well they can integrate our platform into their existing services and then see that being cross-sold across their network. And that's why we saw that dramatic spectrum. And that's where we recognize too in that process that this is the right time to sell because our industry recognizes that they need this platform. And we recognize as a founding team that we needed a lot of capital. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, want to, I want to explore that, that notion again, because it's, it's sort of the definition of a strategic acquisition. So, <laughs> with regards to people, again, I don't know the company at all. When they thought about the synergies, the strategic synergies, you've got this, this software that helps people manage their HR, company owners manage their HR what was the synergy that, that People's uh, Corp saw? Like, how would they, were they planning to cross-sell their services to your customers or vice versa? What, what did it look like? Yeah, and, and I can only share what I suspect because a lot of that was, was kept. Uh, we, we, there were some obvious synergies, but there's certain aspects of it, um, obviously, that as the one being acquired, we weren't privy to. Uh, so People Corp as an organization has done a great job of aggregating a bunch of other uh, insurance brokers as well as administrative type of companies. Uh, what was lacking, what was missing in their portfolio of companies was a, a, an HR platform that would kind of tie these all together. So if you think, if you look fast forward, at least from my experience in the industry, if I fast forward five, 10 years, and this is all done successfully well by one of these large institutions, the perfect world is where the employee experience is one of where they log into one platform and it's really plugged into all other things 
that um, touches them in their employee journey from payroll to HR and so forth, from large to small businesses. So whichever big organization could find a way to tie those all together. And to me, I think that's ultimately what they're striving to do, which requires a lot of capital. Um, Got it. Is the ultimate winner. So, so you could log in as an employee and, and, you know, welcome to ABC widgets and you log in and there's your benefits plan, your dental and your health. And you can probably option there and say, Oh, I want to add my spouse or my kids. And I, Oh, I want to upgrade to this insurance package. And it's all just beautifully integrated. And, And furthermore, I think the next step for a lot of the large financial institution is, well, how do you take that and bring it to the ho- the household. So if I'm an, you know, I'm an employee of a platform, it does all the things you just mentioned. However, that platform knows if I bought a house because I've changed my address, for example. Oh, now I can be sold mortgage insurance or I can be sold other types of things. So it's, it's a race to a marketplace for the future of how the member, the employee is going to be purchasing financial services. And whoever owns that platform, the experience is ultimately the winner. And I'm not sure that anyone has figured out how it's going to work, but it's certainly the direction of where things are heading, where there most likely will be a a smaller few of massive platforms um, that integrate. I don't think this is one platform that covers everything. I think we live in a world where it's more open source integrative, uh, integrated. But it's figuring out that if then you can tap into the individual and allow them at the click of a button to, to buy, from my experience, insurance and financial services, they're, they're sold. They're not really bought. Like no one really goes out looking for life insurance as an example. Yeah. Um, they're at the right time or they're buying a house and someone says, hey, you should probably think of life insurance or they're doing their will and the lawyer says, you know, have you thought about life insurance? So forth. So it's, it, I think the the solution here or the end game is to be able electronically to tap into that user at the right time in that life event. That's helpful for sure. What was the people corpse acquisition uh, price? I think they published it, right? Can you talk about the actual? Yeah. So the the total deal was around 15 million. Uh, The majority of that was cash. And then there was some back end incentives uh, for hitting certain milestones. Um, So it was, Pretty clear, pretty um, simple in that sense. So some some key some key targets on the back end, and then the majority would would be upfront cash deal. Um, yeah. Got it. And so you had raised money at a thirteen million dollar valuation, and then ultimately sold at a fifteen million dollar valuation. What was that? Uh, what was that conversation with your investor like? Did they? Yeah. For How sure. were they feeling about, uh, about the exit? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And we went through sort of the same thought process, uh, trying to figure out what is the right amount to sell. And I, I think we were jaded by the fact that we had raised a significant, at a significant valuation. So we, when we raised, we had zero uh, revenue. There was just three co-founders. Um, so it was very much a raise on an opportunity. So, I mean, we could look at that and say, well, it was $13 million uh, the right valuation? I mean, who's to say, right? At, the, at that moment, there's so many moving parts. Uh, so when we were looking to sell the business, we had to take that anchor out of the calculation uh, and, and not say, well, it's, it's 15 or so, uh, the right number, because we couldn't consider the first valuation, which may or may not been the most accurate. So our investors actually were quite happy with it. Um, obviously they made a return their money. The, and again, I can't speak on behalf of an investor, but what I've seen in our world, technology is a very interesting space in the sense that one in probably a hundred of these businesses succeed, the most are going to fail. Uh, and then there's so many critical moments in the growth of the business where you can skyrocket or you can become a completely bankrupted business. So for us, we have to look at it very seriously and say, well, here's an opportunity for everyone to make a, a relatively significant amount of money, including um, our employees, it was the right decision from a partner perspective to see the brand live on um, because the, the alternative was, well, do we need to raise a significant amount of money to take it to a completely different level? And now we're up against, so all of the partner, all the partners or the parties that came to the table to buy us have since created or are in the process of creating their own competing product. 
So we recognize that this was going to happen. These big organizations were going to compete head to head with us in a very short period of time. So there was this very unique window where we had to make a, a, a quick decision on, do we sell based on this valuation? Does it make sense um, for the three years that we put into this for the vision that we have for the, for the brand? Uh, and ultimately we decided yes. And did the investor benefit from people's uh, acquisition in any way? Like did, did, did Power Corp, who is the, like the investor, did they go on to, to benefit on some level beyond just financially? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Uh, nothing that would have been in the deal. Um, okay. Yeah. Got it. As you, I mean, it's such a rare rarity. I, I think this is, the, we've done 250 plus episodes of Built Radio, and I don't think I can remember a situation where an entrepreneur has gone through two exits almost back to back. Uh, it provides such an interesting comparison. As you compare the two exits, what do you see as the, the real um, points of comparison and also contrast? Uh, yeah, I, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, as far as I think for me, to, when I look at that, trying to figure out the, the right answer to this question, it's about understanding how it aligns to me personally. Um, so if I look at the deals themselves as one thing, but in my case, I, I, it was because I was dealing with both of them together. Uh, it was hard not to kind of look at everything together and say, well, you know, there's a continental shift that's happening in my industry and here's an opportunity uh, to look at, you know, a, a personal financial uh, windfall where it, it you know, makes a lot of sense in the timing. So as far as, you know, how they compared, um, I think they compared in the sense that it was, it was striking at the moment in our industry where, our industry was saying there is a lot of deal activity right now that might not be the case. Now in hindsight, obviously with COVID, there certainly turned out to be the right decision. Um, but that was, that was the common thread between both of them where the industry was speaking and saying it's about to change and it's going to look a certain way. So it felt like these were the right decisions. And, and I tried to take a, a little bit of emotion out of that decision-making and recognize I know my industry well enough to appreciate what's about to happen. Um, and then the differences obviously were dramatic in the sense where with PDF, I was the sole decision-maker. So the process around alignment was far quicker, obviously, than, uh, than that of collage. And collage was um, unique in the sense that we had many options. Uh, whether it was selling, whether it was raising more money, whether it was turning this into a smaller now going forward bootstrapped organization. So there was a lot of uh, internal sort of uh, awareness and discussion and alignment that need to happen. So that I think was, aside from the deal itself, presented some, some unique challenges because it, we all get attached to our business. It's, it's our baby at the end of the day. Uh, and then in these moments, you really you get to understand yourself a lot better and that of, you know, what motivates you and what you want to achieve from your successes and so forth without, without getting too philosophical on the matter. But it does take you into a place where you really need to, or I felt I really need to self-reflect and understand what it is that um, motivates me. It's interesting because your co-founders, one of whom you went to high school with, I mean, you know, you knew these guys really, really well. Yes. What did you learn about them? What new did you learn about your co-founders going through the exit process on collage? Oh, wow. That's a tough one, John. Um, I, you know what? I was fortunate. I was very fortunate. We were very aligned from the get-go as far as where we felt or rather feeling that the time to sell was appropriate. So I think my learning in all this was that I, you know, we, we, we got, in, we started and got into the business very quickly. So we didn't do, aside from having known each other, I still think any co-founder team uh, has a lot of benefit by doing a little bit of understanding of who the co-founders and what skills they bring to the table and so forth. We got fortunate that everything aligned very smoothly. So I really don't have 
any negative learnings um, with my co-founding team, more so on the positive side, in the sense that I cannot stress how fortunate enough to know that we are still aligned and seeing from different perspectives, technology, finance, and insurance, from seeing uh, the opportunity the same way. Fantastic. Well, I'm so glad it worked out for you in both cases. Um, it's an incredible story. Peter, is there a place where people can reach out if they want to get to know you more, maybe connect with you? Uh, are you a LinkedIn guy? Like, what, What's the best way to reach out? LinkedIn would be the best. Yeah, just Peter Domangos on LinkedIn. Not that many people with that name. I'm sure they can find me. <laughs> the Greek spelling, and we'll put it That's in right. the uh, we'll put it in the show notes at builtthecell.com. Peter, it was great to get to know you. Uh, congratulations on both exits. I uh, can't wait to see what happens in phase two. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.